Sean. Thank you so much for coming. We've been very excited to have you here. Yeah. And I thought, um, before I go into the format for today's talk, I wanted to just tell everyone how you and I first met. Sure. So it was last spring. I was an MBA one, and I had just joined The View from the Top team. And I was standing in town square, and I looked to my right, and I saw a man that I thought I recognized. And he was talking on the phone, and I was thinking to myself, Welcome to Money is Not Evil podcast, the show where you will be inspired to change your life. He looks so familiar. And I had been CEO recruiting before coming to Stanford, and then it hit me. That is Ron Johnson from Apple, now at JCPenney. And I was starstruck because CEOs are like my celebrities. So mm -hmm. I was really excited to see you and decided to awkwardly wait around until you were done with your phone call, which was kind of strange. But um, I then approached you and, and asked if you would be willing to come back to school at some point and be a guest for View from the Top. And you were very gracious and said, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And that is why we are sitting here today. So I remember that day. <laughs> But in her defense, I do say yes to anything Stanford, so it wasn't Amanda. It was just Stanford. No, I'm kidding. Um, I'm, we're just lucky you're here. And um, so, yeah, before we get started, I just wanted to give a lay of the land for everyone. We're going to go somewhat chronologically and start with your background, um, your schooling, then go to your time at your innovative time at Target and Apple. Sure and move on to your somewhat difficult tenure at JCPenney mm -hmm. and the lessons learned from there, then kind of go more broadly into retail and the changing landscape of retail and your thoughts there, and finally end with some more personal questions. Good, we'll do that in about 30 minutes. Yeah, that 30 minutes, now that really easy, it's gonna take no time at all. That's great. All right, so to start off, um, Ron, what did you like to do as a kid? Well, I, like many kids, I just lived to play sports, and so I grew up Throwing balls, kicking balls, doing everything. I was captain of my high school baseball and soccer teams. I actually played soccer here at Stanford, which was really fun. And so I was kind of one of those athlete guys. Yeah. Not a great student, uh, but loved sports. You weren't a great student, but you got into Stanford. How'd that happen? It was a lot easier. <laughs> uh, I remember when I was, I came out here and I had a bunch of good friends in high school. And I think the year before I applied, there were nine applicants from my high school to Stanford. And because I wanted to go, I told all my friends to apply, not thinking it's competitive. 25 people applied the next year to Stanford, and, uh, but nine of us got in. And uh, so I had a good cohort coming from a little public school outside of Minneapolis, which was great. Great. So I understand your father was an executive at General mm -hmm. Mills. I was just curious if that had any impact on you and your career interests or just things you thought about growing up. Yeah, it really did. My dad was uh, the strategic planner at General Mills. And I think for all you business school students, companies go through different cycles. Back in the 60s, a lot of the consumer packaged companies would take their large multiples and acquire other companies. In the 60s, General Mills owned 60 different brands. It owned things like Lacoste from France. It owned toy companies like Parker Brothers. And so my dad was kind of the one who would do a lot of the in investigation. Should they acquire the company? And then how do you operate them? And so just, I think, anyone who's around their parents, if you have a close relationship, you're going to pick up interests and passions related to your parents. Right. And my first time to Stanford was when my dad was coming out here as a sophomore in high school to interview business school students to go work at General Wells. And I you know, got to know the campus from there. And so my dad had a profound impact on me. That's really great. So 
you came to Stanford, and yeah. as the dean mentioned, you were an econ major. Mm -hmm. Did you have any idea what you wanted to do after college? Was that informing some kind of No, path? I just, I was, I think a lot of us, when you're young, your goal is to open doors. You're not sure what you want to do, but you want to have as many degrees of freedom. And that's one of the advantages of going to school like Stanford. Right. Uh, going to school like Stanford Business School, Harvard Business School, it really opens doors. And so I kind of believed that I was probably going to pursue a business career. Mm -hmm. And therefore, the more experiences I could gain and the more things that would give me freedom to choose what I ultimately wanted to do would be a good thing to do. Yeah. Um, but then you'll see at some point you've got to make a commitment that now here's what I want my life to be about. Right. Um, and I kind of decided that during Harvard Business School. Yeah, let's talk uh, about that. Sure. Why'd you go to Harvard? I mean, yeah. we all, we're all at Well, the truth I'm is, kidding. I was waitlisted. I didn't get into Stanford Business School. Wow. I applied, and I was waitlisted uh, out of my undergraduate experience. I reapplied. I was waitlisted again. And so I went to Harvard. It, it actually turned out great because I think living on the East Coast mm -hmm. was a wonderful life experience. And it's kind of nice to have the chance to live in different places. So it worked out really well. Agreed. Agreed. So you, I'm curious to know if business school, what kind of impact business school had on you as you've gone throughout your career? Are there any lessons that you've kind of taken with you from HBS and, and carried yeah, the forward? Num the number one lesson I learned at HBS, because HBS is complete, as you know, case study. And I think over your two-year experience, you go through 900 cases. And in each one, your class has 80 or 90 people. And we'd all read the same case, but everyone would have a different opinion. And that led me to recognize, in part, that there is no one right answer to most business problems, but it'll be informed by your own experience and ultimately your own intuition. Right. And so being in a classroom with all these different opinions, it led me to believe, as I pursued my career, that don't just fall into the expected, obvious, easy path. Mm -hmm. Don't just rely on numbers. Because if you rely on data, and the data is going to drive the evidence which drives a decision, well, most companies would come up with the same approach. And ultimately, when you have a, an approach that's like a commodity, it doesn't do very well. Right. And most of the great uh, businesses had a spark of innovation. And I think I really picked that up at business school you know, seeing classes and hearing that oddball kind of thought or approach right. kind of out of right field. And I think that was a big lesson. And you realize there are just tons of smart people in the world, um, but it's all about execution, teamwork, but sometimes picking the unexpected path. Right. So you, you said, I remember mm -hmm. hearing in an interview before, that you said the retail cases and the retail CEOs and founders that came in yeah to HBS were really fascinating to you. And you kind right. of decided that you'd like to pursue a career in retail. And your thought was to get into this kind of creative and interesting field, you thought it was best to work in the field. Mm -hmm. So you started at Mervyn's and, you know, on the floor. But right. your first, t you know, couple months, you said you weren't even allowed to meet with customers. You were yep. in the back, the back room yep. until you eventually made your way to the cash register. So I want to yep. ask, how were you able to be so patient Right. And how were you able to prove yourself, you know, get noticed, and eventually get the promotions that led you on a, a path to a very successful sure. career? Sure. Uh, well, that was, a lot of people thought I was crazy, but when I was at, I interned at Solomon Brothers in Investment Banking in New York between first and second year business school. Mm -hmm. I had offers, like many, to go to a lot of the investment banks, 
There were a lot of jobs that were, in the short run, very rewarding financially yeah. with offers multiples of what I accepted. But I kind of hit the point where I said, I'm 25 or 6 years old. The question is what you do next. It's what you do for a lifetime. And sitting through the Harvard Business School cases where the founders of companies, almost all cases, the people who led companies had grown up with their company or with that industry. It was rare there was a consultant leading a company. All that happens. It was typically people that had really, who were smart and well-trained, but had an, an intuitive expertise. And so when I looked at where my passion was, I loved all the retailing cases. I liked walking through stores. And as I thought about retailing, I said, well, it's, it's fast-moving. It's people-intensive. You get sales or feedback every day. It's not unlike playing a sport, which I loved. And the interesting thing, very few Harvard Business School students or MBAs would go into retailing. So I figured if I put my head down and worked hard, you know, it might be an easier place to succeed than going to a place where a lot of people like me went. And so, and at that time, you got to put things in context too. Retailing, when I graduated from business school, was very different than retail today. The venture capital firms were funding retailers, not technology companies. When I joined came out of business school, that's when Mickey Drexler first went to The Gap from a department store. That's when Les Wexner of limited fame and Victoria's Secret invented the modern specialty store. That's when U.S. Ventures was funding Staples and Toys R Us as startups, because that's when big box retailing started. So retailing was in a very transition, because I'm an old guy. This was 30 plus years ago. So I was picking kind of a startup field mm -hmm. where a lot of young people were leading these companies. So it was on, Mickey was 34, I think, when he went to The Gap. Wow. So in retailing, because it's a meritocracy, you can see the results that a, person, a buyer bought this and it performed. You run this store, it performed. I figured if I go to a place that's aligned with my passions, that's a meritocracy, if I trust, if I put my head down and do good work, I will have a chance to have impact. I just did it. And I figured your education doesn't really stop when you're done with business school. That's when it starts. But you're moving from broad principles to detailed understanding. And that led me, when they asked me at Mervyn's, do you want to come to headquarters? I said, no, I'd like to start in a store. And what job? I said, well, what's the lowest job? And they said, the receiving people. I said, that'll be my start. Because I just wanted to learn from the ground up. And I unloaded trucks for three months. And I got really fast. It was great exercise. <laughs> We could do a big trailer in 45 minutes. But the art was, what you were learning was, how do merchandise get packaged? How is it organized on a trailer? How do you stock it efficiently? How do you make sure goods get to the floor? So the way to learn in almost anything is by doing. And you know, I found in my career, unfortunately, I'd get promoted after about six months or a year in every position when I really wasn't quite ready to leave yet. Yeah. And so the trade-off, I think, when you start at the bottom, you have a lot of chances to make a lot of little moves. But it gave me lifetime knowledge, which I value to today. So I can walk through a store and I see things probably that I wouldn't see if I hadn't done that. Right. It's fascinating. So after Mervyn's, you moved to Target. I mm -hmm. believe Mervyn's was acquired by Target. Is that correct? Well, actually, there was a department store company called Dayton Hudson. Okay. There used to be 60 department stores in the U.S. Now there are three or four. Dayton Hudson started Target the same year Walmart and Kmart started, 1961. They acquired Mervyn's from Merv Morris, who lives here in Atherton, probably been at the school at times. Uh, 
and I joined Mervyn's because that was their growth strategy when I joined. Understood. Hit tough times, Target became the growth strategy, and I joined Target in 1990. Great. So your tenure there, mm -hmm. as the dean was, was alluding to, was praised especially for its innovative approaches to partnerships yep. and merchandising. And you collaborated with designer and mm -hmm. architect Michael Graves and brought a whole line of products, especially the, the famous tea kettle with the bird mm -hmm. whistle on top. I was curious, how did this idea for the democratization of design mm -hmm. come to you? How did you know that an affordable retailer was going to have the consumer's interest in this kind of loftier um, design personality? Uh, it, you know, it was just one of those intuitive, instinctual moments. <clears throat> so I was, I think at the, I'd been at Target four or five years. I'd just taken over all the home areas. and. I was starting to travel to Europe, and I'd also bought my own first home. And I was struck by all the beautiful objects of art. I think I love things that are beautiful that you'd find in these really high-end boutiques that were expensive, but there was nothing like that available in a store like Target. Right. And as a merchant, what we used to do is we'd you know, buy something from someone else, copy it six months later at a low price, and that's how we created value. It was really a strategy of copying others at a better price. And it hit me, why, why do the small, expensive brands create when the big brands with all the resources copy? Right. It didn't make sense. And why are beautiful objects not available to everyday people, but they're available to the well-to-do? And it seemed like a, discon a disconnect. And Michael Graves had designed a tea kettle in 1984. This is now 10 years later. That was still the best-selling tea kettle in the world. Alessi made it. It sells a million tea kettles a year of this one thing. And in the 80s, and if you lived in Manhattan and didn't have one of these on your stove, you weren't with it. And so I thought, well, if we're going to do design, which I wanted to try design, I thought design would be much more interesting than fashion because fashion lasts a season. Right. A great design lasts a lifetime. If Target could do great design and stake out a position, you'd need to partner with a great designer. So I saw Michael, and I asked him, I said, Michael, would you like to design for Target? And it turns out he was the dean of architecture at Princeton, and his biggest frustration is not a single student could afford his tea kettle. So Michael and I connected, and you know, we then launched the Michael Grace collection. And it was really hard to do, because no one at Target thought it would work. Right, because uh, you said that like, even though it's got this trendy exterior and trendy marketing, that Target was a pretty traditional company on the inside. Right. Well, it led to my biggest discovery probably at Target. You, know, you work 15 years for one discovery that you carry with you, and that was what truly is innovation. Innovation you hear in every class probably. Everyone thinks they innovate, but most, most of the time it's just improvement. Because innovation is, the eye, is in the eye of the innovator. And a lot of people, without really big thinking, will see improvement as innovation. Right. But almost all innovation stems from your imagination. Yep. It's something that hadn't been thought of before. When I worked at Apple, Steve was the best at this. But anytime you imagine something, you're going to be stuck battling reality filters, you know, kind of assumptions about the business that are embedded in the company you're at. So when I was at Target, I mean, when I said I wanted to do this partnership with Michael Graves, it was not well received. Who's Michael Graves? Why do you think our customer like design? How do you present a beautiful object on a steel gondola? 
you know? Yeah. How do you sell a tea kettle for three times the price of your highest priced tea kettle today? You know, the whole idea was not we can deliver great value to middle America or middle upper America. It was here's why it wouldn't work. But to, to win in business, you've got to let the imagination win if you really want to innovate. <clears throat> And so we launched the Graves Collection. They, my, the CEO said, Ron, why don't you try three SKUs? Well, I snuck in a few more. We did 140 <laughs> items. Just a few. And we had items for, you know, kitchen and decorative. And we took over the main end caps. Yeah. And then we even got so excited about it that we decided to launch the Graves Collection in New York. We took over the Whitney Museum wow. on Madison Avenue and filled it with these objects of art and invited all of the press to see what design could be for everyday people. And somehow it connected with people. And, and that led to a series of things uh, that helped Target differentiate itself, really become preferred. Right. And that's why today there's really Target and Walmart are the only two discounters. In 1995, there were 11 discount stores, you know, regionally located. And it ended up being two. And in every business, there's usually a, a differentiator. And there's a low-cost player. And Target won with differentiation. And, I think the Graves thing was one of the parts of it. But the lesson of Graves is you don't have to be the senior person in the company to impact the company. You know, I was kind of a middle, you know, rising middle market kind of person at Target. At least I look at myself that way. And we just did what we believed was right, and it turned out to impact the company. So you can't sit around in business waiting for someone to do great things. You know, I think it's up to everyone in business to do great work. And that leads to one of my beliefs is leadership is always at its best situational. It's not positional. It's not about who's got a title. Right. It's the leader is the leader in the moment who's got accountability. That's where the best leadership comes. Sorry to go too long. I'm, no, I'm this is, no, this is fascinating. Yeah. Everyone just loves hearing the stories. Okay. So to go on to Apple, you mm -hmm. joined in 2000 yep. from Target. And you've said, and I quote, as a merchant, you can source things, but you don't know how to create. Mm -hmm. So how did you learn to create when it came to designing what turned out to be the revolutionary Apple Store? Well, that's a good question. Well, I, I also subscribe to the belief that everyone is a creator and everyone is creative. Right. All you have to do is go to a playground and see kids, right? Mm -hmm. Go to a preschool class. Everyone wants to create. Somehow through life, schools and stereotypes you know, break people into buckets of you're analytical or you're creative, you're right brain, left brain. I think we're all creators. And we just have to figure out how to do that. Mm -hmm. And so when I joined Apple, I had had a, a great career at Target. But at Target, I wasn't given the chance to kind of learn the entire retail industry. And Steve was looking to launch stores. And he said, Ron, you get to do it all. You get to do the real estate, the store design, the people, on and on and on. And I thought a chance to work with really perhaps one of the best creators in the world directly would be just a, a lifetime opportunity. I love the Apple brand, even though it was you know 3% market share, company losing money. I'm leaving Target to go to this loser, all my <laughs> friends in the valleys. Why would you go to Apple? There are 2,000, all these internet startups, and you're going to open a store. You know, usual, what are you thinking? Um, but it turned out to be probably the best career decision I ever made. Yeah. And working with Steve was a real blessing. Yeah, so, so the question was, <laughs> how did I learn to create? Yeah. Well, it, I went back to what, what made Michael Graves work at Target is I trusted my imagination. Mm -hmm. So when, 
we had to launch the Apple stores. I was the only retailer at Apple. And I was by myself. And I'd go to the executive team meeting on Monday, and I'd sit around and think. And so I started to imagine, if you were going to design a great experience for a customer, what would you do? And I made a list. And everything I made the list was kind of counterintuitive. Like, typically, if something's going to be bought every three years, retailers or people would locate in inexpensive places like an auto dealership, some remote parking lot, because you don't want to pay for traffic, the customer will come to you. Right. But I thought, well, if Apple's 10 miles away from a customer, we'll never get a chance to suit up. We've got to be 10 feet out of their way, so we've got to go to the shopping malls and the high streets like Fifth Avenue to put an Apple store. And, you know, everything we did, you know, people... You know, we're going to have face-to-face support, but at that time, everyone was going to the Internet and telephone support where it's efficient. Mm-hmm. But I just believe technology's hard, and you want to be able to talk to someone face-to-face if you want to learn, right? Oh, yeah. And if you're going to buy something, you know, we ought to have commissioned salespeople. Well, no, no one likes commissioned salespeople. You want somebody who just looks in your heart, not your pocketbook. Well, we made a list of about eight or ten things that we said, now that would be a great experience. And the good news... Steve trusts imagination instinct even more than I do. And so we made this list, and Steve said, let's go build that. And so we designed and created the Apple stores. But it was a pure play. There was really no compromise on any of the intuition. It's amazing. And I think that's how the Apple stores connected. And, and even today, you walk by an Apple store, people feel like they belong. Sometimes they go just to go. You know, they don't go to buy. There's so many reasons to come. You can get help. You can bring the kids and play at the kids' tables. You can learn. Right. You can try. You can surf the Internet. Check your email. <laughs> Check your email. Yeah. But, you know, back in, this is how fast the world changes. When we launched the Apple stores, do you know who the number one, guess what percent of people had broadband or high-speed Internet in the U.S.? Anyone want to guess? 3%. 97% of America was on dial-up Internet. So no one had ever seen a high-speed Internet. And I said, Steve, this is going to make Apple computers seem really good because they're going to come in and try the Internet, and they'll think they're fast. And, uh, but we created a place that people... And this is before the smartphone. So no one could surf the Internet on a phone. So if you're in a mall waiting for someone, you, you had to wait. You couldn't do anything. And so we created a place for communities to form where people could just check their email and experience the Mac. Yeah. And it was just part of that community thing. But... You know, fortunately, it worked. It's amazing. Um, but it was trusting your imagination. So Steve clearly trusted in your imagination. Mm-hmm. I'm sure everyone's dying to know a little bit more sure. about what it was like to work with Steve. Um, and so I'm wondering, to ask a specific question, what's the one conversation that you really remember or a moment with Steve that you kind of carry with you um, to this day? That's, that's a really good question. Steve... Uh, really wanted to be best friends with a handful of people. I think because he was so successful, age 24, you know, founded the Mac, and overnight he became this very public figure. And he's a pretty private person. Mm -hmm. And I don't think he ever liked being in the public. And so he tended to have a handful of, you know, 10, 20 people that he was close to. And when I started working with him, he said, Ron, he said, I just, if you don't mind, I really want to not be an employee. I want to be a friend. And I want to talk to you. I want to get to know you well. And the reason I want to do that is because once you know how I think, I can just let you go, and you only have to talk to me 
when you want to do something, you don't know how I think. You know, so he had this intense way of developing these close relationships. And the first time we met in an interview, we talked for two, three hours, just like you and I are talking, about a lot of subjects, and I found myself very comfortable with him. And so through the years, Steve and I would talk you know, most days on the phone. Anytime I'd call, can you come to the house? You know, he'd love to be face-to-face. -face, you know? And so you, you, Steve was one of these guys you actually developed a very intimate relationship with. And it led to, I think, the most misunderstood thing about Steve is he's the best delegator I've ever met. And Yeah, because he has that image of being a control freak. Image yeah. control freak, but he was such a good delegator because he was so clear on what he believed in and what he liked. Because he had such clarity of purpose, when you worked with Steve, you could actually operate without a lot of, with a lot of freedom in a strange way. Um, so the question was, what's the best thing? I think the thing I remembered from Steve is you have to be willing to start again. We were launching the stores, and uh, one, uh, one day Steve and I were talking, we came up with this idea of the digital hub, which was going to be Apple's business philosophy, because the, to move beyond the Mac, the Mac had to connect to all these devices, which became a music player, a phone, whatever, but the Mac was the center of your digital life. So the next week, we were going to our weekly store meeting. We were designing the store, and I met Steve. Before, I'd go to his office, because he liked to ride in the car over about two miles to this place we are building the store. I said, Steve, I've been thinking. I think the store's organized all wrong. We've organized it like a retail store around products. But if Apple's going to organize around activities like music and movies, well, the store should be organized around music and movies and things you do. Mm -hmm. And he looked at me and said, do you know how big a change that is? I don't have the time to redesign the store. You might be right, but I don't want you to say a word about this to anybody because I don't know if I want to do that. So we got in the car, two-mile ride, not a word. We walk into this meeting, which has, you know, architects and people on my team, about 20 people. And Steve walks in, and the first thing he looks at the group, he says, well, Ron thinks our store is all wrong. Are you under the bus? This is 10 minutes later, hasn't talked, and he said, and he's right. So I'm going to leave now. And Ron, you work with the team and design the store. Wow. And we started stretch. He called me later that day and he said, Ron, you, you reminded me of something I learned with every movie I did at Pixar. Almost every movie at some point, frequently when we we're about to release, we realized the script could be better. The ending's not quite right. This character isn't exactly how this character should be. And at Pixar, we always had the willingness to not worry about the movie release date, mm -hmm. but to get the movie right. You only get one chance to create a movie. You only get one chance to launch a store. Yeah. So it's not about how fast you do it. It's about doing your absolute best. And that lesson carried through to so many things I've done. It's not about speed to market. It's really about doing your level best. And you got to be willing, if you rethink things, to have the courage to start again. And I think that would be the memory I remember from Steve, you know, one of them. Thank you. So I want to take the time now to go to JCPenney. Which, Do we have to? Yeah. <laughs> I, think every, I think everyone's a little curious. Yeah. Um, <laughs> just a little. 
I thought I'd start with a quote, and I'll read it to you so you don't have to sure. kind of strain. Sure. You said, I didn't come here to improve. I came here to transform. Every single leader in America who works to improve their business year after year can create gradual results. But the only question is, how fast did you improve compared to someone else? You don't fundamentally change your position in the marketplace. So to turn that into a question, Ron, at Target and Apple, it seems that you approach new ideas with an iterative, incremental approach. So mm -hmm. they might have been big ideas, but you, at Target, for example, you gradually built new lines. Mm -hmm. At Apple, you increasingly made the stores more elaborate. Like mm -hmm. you didn't have the Fifth Avenue store right away with the big glass mm -hmm. cube, mm -hmm. et cetera. So at JCPenney, when you did away with coupons pretty early on, you added smaller branded stores mm -hmm. within a store, you had a mobile POS, like very big changes mm -hmm. for a pretty old fashioned department store. Why do you think you moved more quickly and less incrementally when you got to JCPenney? That's a great question. And, and the truth is, it's probably arrogance. You know, and I, I don't think of myself as an arrogant person. I think of myself as confident. You know, I, if I believe in something, I'll pursue it. Yeah. But I think what people didn't realize is I grew up at Mervyn's, and I am a student of the department store of the retail industry. Yeah, it was like going home. And I remember what it was like in the good days, and I looked at what it's like today. And I had a, the reason I went to JCPenney is I just kind of thought it'd be really fun to take a 109-year-old company and try to see if we couldn't find a way for it to succeed for the next 100 years. And when you looked at JCPenney, the stock price was below, when I joined, what it was in 1992, 30 years later. And almost every other retail store that was there 30 years ago wasn't in existence. And the customer's aging. If you're going to have a chance to succeed, you've got to change the model to get at a younger customer base in a more profitable customer base. <clears throat> and so I concluded, which on hindsight was an error, that the best way to make a move was to jumpstart the change, be willing to go through a very difficult period right. of down sales, but over the course of time, we would get to our place faster. Right. When I was at Apple in 2002, people forget this, Apple sales were down 38% to 2001. Apple had to make major transitions to build its new business model, and it leveraged its cash position to do that. So I felt the same thing here. If you do, when you join a large bureaucracy like JCPenney, if you don't have a vision for change, the organization will never, it was my belief. Um, so we developed this vision, you know, collectively the group, and we are very excited about it. And, you know, I'm kind of one of these go for it guys, so we decided to go. But on hindsight, the biggest mistake, we went way too fast. Way too fast for our board, way too fast for customers, way too fast for employees, way too fast for shareholders. And it, it would have been, if someone had just said, Ron, love your vision, take a year, reduce your expenses, build your team, and then start to roll it out, we would have probably been much more successful. Yeah. But I think it was kind of arrogance. I just had such, I'd had such success. You know, most of the things I'd done at Apple and Target worked, and so you kind of think, well, this will work too. Right. And uh, the reality is, you know, we've moved too quickly. So you, after 17 months, you were let go at JCPenney. And I'm curious to know, what was going through your head when you first received the news? Like, what do you do when you well, receive well, that but phone call? But, that but this, that's another thing you'll learn about. You really can't believe what you read. 
-hmm. And that was my big lesson from JCPenney because I resigned three times. Uh, in February, I offered to resign. In March, I offered to resign. And finally, uh, in April, the board chair said, Ron, we're going to accept your resignation. Okay. Now, companies have a need to position things for, uh, you know, the board wants to be in charge. You know, so all he said was, well, Ron, we're just going to write you're no longer with the company. They never said you were let go. But I made the choice because it was very painful. It was painful for the board, for employees. And I said, look, we're at a point, it's been one year of transformation. If you want to go back to the old business model, the sooner you do that, the better. Mm. And that's a choice that you can make as a board. If you want to do that, you ought to find someone who can really help that model work. If you want to go forward, I'm all in. And we will make this work, but I know it's painful. Yeah. And I remember telling the board, it's going to get worse, because all the focus was on me as the CEO. After a while, they're going to say, why is the board sticking behind this guy when the business is tough? And I said, I want you to think that through now, because I don't want it to be three months or six months when we're going ahead, and then you decide you can't handle the change. And you know, they finally said, we'll accept your resignation. It doesn't get published that way. You know? yeah. And that's OK. So it wasn't a surprise to me. Got it. And in some ways, it was a relief. It was disappointing, because I really believed we would make it work. But it was a relief, because the lesson I learned is I was a terrible fit for JCPenney. You know, I'm a creative person. This is a company that isn't uber creative, right? Yeah. I believe in change. This comp company is much more comfortable, like many people are, with the status quo, right? And so it's really important when you pick a job or a company to really focus on the fit. Yeah. Um, Jim Coulter, TPG Business School, you know, Jim said to me, Ron, he goes, number one issue is fit. And he goes, it wasn't a good fit for your passions and your style and your skills. I think he's right on that. Yeah. And so it's kind of a relief to get away from that, quite frankly, because it was hard and it wasn't you know, as fulfilling as you'd hope. Um, mm -hmm. so. And I, I'm curious to know, it was your first CEO role. Mm -hmm. um, what makes the CEO role different than your other executive positions? Were, were there any, you, know, you can think of the obvious reasons why it's different, but were there any like, surprises, things that you didn't realize would be part of the job? Well, I think the biggest surprise to me was it, people don't tell you what they believe. Be, I think because of positional authority, it's very hard to understand what people really think. Interesting. No matter how you ask. Now, tell me what you think. What do you think about this? They're going to tell you what they believe you want to hear because they're interested in survival. Right. Now, most people want to continue in their because they want to say they're on board. And I didn't really recognize the power of positional authority being a CEO. Mm. And remember, I'd been at two companies, Target for, and I started you know, in the stock room. So I earned my relationships, my credibility through a lot of years. At Apple, I was the first retail employee. When I left, we had 50,000. But everyone knew me just from working together for years and years. When I went to Penny's, somehow I kind of assumed that a lot of the trust I developed as a leader the, that social capital would transfer. Mm -hmm. But the reality is, as a leader, you've got to earn that. You know, you can't take that for granted. And you earn it through relationship. You earn it through experience. And I think that's the other thing why you have to go slow when you take over a new company, is you've got to build trust. And I moved way too quickly, assuming I had the trust of the team. Does that make sense? And I think you have to earn it. 
And in many ways, I think there's a theory, the older the company, the slower the change. IBM, as an example, if you talk to Ginny, uh, who'd be great to come talk to the group, Ginny would say they're still in transformation since 1994. They're in the 20th, 30th year of a transformation. Wow. Right? Yeah. Old company. A company like Apple, relatively young, can move quicker. The startups here pivot all the time. There's not a lot of institutional memory. And I think length of time has a big, big impact on speed. Um, but ultimately, as a leader, you need to have the teams earn the team's trust. And you earn trust. You aren't granted trust, is right. my sense. Thank you, Ron. So to move to the retail industry in general and yep. trends that you believe in or kind of foresee or, or trends you don't believe in, do you agree? We had Mark Andreessen here as part mm -hmm. of you from the top this year. And he's written an article that basically hypothesizes that bricks and mortar stores will cease to exist. Yeah. What, do you, what do you think about that opinion? Well, when Mark first wrote that, I wrote him back. I think I said, I think you're crazy. You know? <laughs> and Reid Hoffman wanted me to write a, a counter article on LinkedIn as one of these view from the top things. To, but I decided not to do that. Uh, <laughs> but I think Mark is more right than wrong. It surprises me. Now, we live in a high-touch world. We're all social animals, and we love to engage. And I think there will be a physical component to retail forever. But the Internet is changing commerce in increasingly profound and rapid ways as we speak. Mm -hmm. And so I now see, I mean, all you have to do is walk through the mall, and you see dramatic change. You go to Stanford Shopping Center, you can see the world change before your eyes. <laughs> the mall will survive, but it's restaurants and it's soul cycle, and it's a variety of engaging activities and fewer stores, right? Mm. And most of the startups today in retail start online. And then when they add a store, they add a store, but it's a very different kind of store. It might be a showroom. Think of Warby Parker, think of Bonobot, you know, people yeah. like that. <clears throat> and so the world is changing. There will always be stores, I believe, but the share that is done online or in different ways, I think, will continue to grow dramatically for a long time. It's a really interesting way to look at it. There will be places where people gather, but it's more experience-driven. It'll be. It's like the Apple Store. Yeah. The Apple Store is a place to be. Only one out of the hundred who visit the store every day buy anything. Think about that. You go to Whole Foods, 75% buy. The ones who don't are the kids in the shopping cart, right? <laughs> a store like Whole Foods, everyone buys. A store like an apparel store, 25 to 30% buy. At the Apple store, one buys. But it's the busiest store in the mall. So what's going on? There's a connection, right? There's a connection. There's a place. There's something. And that's what malls will be. It doesn't mean malls won't be busy and there won't be activity. But you might find it's not as convenient to buy there. Right. Because if I bought online, other things will happen as part of the experience that will be much better than going to the store. I think we're going to look at stores pretty soon and say, God, it's like they were just public warehouses. Mm -hmm. If you think about a big department store, it's just lots of stuff that we go pick out of. But it's not tailored. It's not personal. There's nothing uh, special about it. You know, the world's going to get intensely personal. Yeah, you customized. Know? High tech, high okay. touch have to go together. And, you know, it's interesting. It, it, when I grew up, you know, if we wanted to call a friend... We'd have to take the phone, and we only had one phone in the family, and no one else could use it. Right. But my kids are much more connected to their friends through technology. 
So technology creates much more intimacy than the old thing does. And so you just got to figure out how do you create more intimacy and more relationship and more experience through stores, but it doesn't mean that's where you have to buy. And I think the Apple store in many ways is a precursor of where things might go. Yeah. Um, and there will be a lot more coming. Great. I'm excited for that. So I wanted to end with a few more personal questions. Sure. And I wanted to ask, have you ever applied your insights into creating wonderful experiences for customers to creating wonderful experiences for your family? That's interesting, yeah. Um, <laughs> well, I do. I, I, love, I love to travel. Okay. And so uh, I have two kids, a, a freshman in college and a sophomore in high school, and we've taken some fascinating trips. I love to plan little excursions and trips for the family. Mm -hmm. uh, but the biggest thing, probably, I finally had a, I had a dream to build a home in France. And I took a lot of years, found a great property, and designed a home you know, for our family for a lifetime. And I think it turned out pretty good. That's awesome. And it was really just one of these lovely things to get to do. And it's very unique. It's very... Is it high tech? It's, it's, no, it's actually... I'd say it's uh, it's unmistakably modern, but decidedly French. So it's got uh, sounds good. That, that's kind of the a thousand songs in your pocket tagline, but it, it's totally connected to the land and the gardens and this. And it's but it's only got three materials. It's got French limestone, it's got bronze, and it's got glass. Wow. Well, I guess in wood, you know, the floors. But, you need some wood but it's a very modern thing, but it feels like the most comfortable place you've ever been, at least to a lot of people. So I, I, I did that. And that was kind of like, to me, designing an Apple store. Yeah. yeah. Every Apple store that's great has a sense of place. It's like Steve used to say uh, if you really think something through hard enough, you'll get to the inevitable answer. And the store that I think we got to that on uh, was the Fifth Avenue Glass Cube. You know, that's like the fifth most popular tourist attraction in Manhattan. Mm -hmm. And it's because it's the, the stunning little glass box that's literally 900 square feet. Most people that make an impact on the skyline of Manhattan do that at 56 or 60 stories. Yeah. Well, Apple did it 32 feet 6 inches because we got the context right. And we thought it through, and it's just the right design for that place. And it shows the power of thinking something through, which Steve was by far the best at. And would push you until you got to that. And I think for me, building the home was kind of like building a great Apple store. Mm -hmm. It's got to have a sense of place, a sense of connection. It's got to create a place you love to be. Yeah. So it moves beyond being a home. It becomes a huge part of your life. Thanks. So. So going forward, I wanted to know kind of what's next, mm -hmm. and maybe a little side question to that is, do you think you're more reserved about taking risks now after you took the risk of trying to turn around JCPenney? Good questions. Uh, what's next? So I am 55, I think. Don't look it. So you, you don't know? You're supposed don't to know the details. Um, so <laughs> I, I view myself, I, one of the things about life is we're all living longer now, right? And one of the issues that faces America is People retire on these old traditional things, but then they're going to live longer and they're going to be healthier and more active. And you've got to live your life as if you'll live forever, knowing that you probably won't and you know, take advantage of every day. And so I do think there's you know, a couple other things I can do in my life. But I took a year to kind of think it through. Mm. 
And so after the pennies thing, which was really hard, I made the decision not to say yes to any board seats, CEO jobs, volunteer jobs, but just to make myself available to people who wanted advice. And it could be an individual, it could be a company, it could be a venture capital firm. Well, I was getting 10 requests every five minutes last April to meet. You know, 10, 10 requests every hour, so about every five minutes. And so I finally narrowed down to just do three meetings a day for different groups. Wow. And I did that through the fall and in the process, discovered kind of where my passions are. And as you can tell, it's creating things, new things, and building teams. And so what I'm going to spend the rest of the next few years is creating new things and building teams. And I'm doing that in a couple of ways. One is I've established a new fund called Johnson Partners, which aligns uh, two to four of the leading venture capital private equity firms mm -hmm. with their startups or companies, with people I've met throughout the world who are going to put money into a fund, and we will, I will exclusively help those firms. Wow. Um, and so we'll be co-investing and advising a handful of firms and their companies. Uh, and then uh, working on uh, some other things that I can't talk about yet. But Whoa. Well, we're going to be excited to see what those are. Yeah. So um, I think I've taken my fair share of time here. So I wanted to make sure to open it up to questions. Ron, thank you so much again. Sure. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you. So I believe we're going to start with a question from Twitter. Is that correct? Sitting right here on Twitter. Um, she says, uh, we've heard about mistakes you made at JCPenney. Uh, what did you do there that you think will have a lasting positive impact? Well, that, you know, it's really hard to have impact in a short period. I think, I think the thing that we did do that has kind of been mistaken is we lost a billion dollars in a year, which is hard to do. <laughs> But we invested a billion dollars in the physical plant at the stores. And our cash actually went up. You know, so we actually generated more cash. And we started uh, major investments in the stores. And even today, when you talk to the pennies team, the stores look better than they have. And so I think that whole belief that the physical environment has to be upgraded uh, is something you see when you walk in the stores and that will last. Um, my biggest failing, though, was the pricing, because I, I, I really believe that everyone deserves truth in their relationship with companies. There's got to be a foundation in truth. Yeah. And so when you don't have integrity on the price ticket, that's, to me, a big deal. And most places we shop today, there's integrity on the price. You go to Starbucks, you pay for the coffee, right? Uh, you go to Costco, you know what the price is. The department store industry has evolved in this thing where the artificial price is about 70% above what people pay. And I feel badly that something that was so near and dear to my values, we failed on the execution that we couldn't fix. Because I think the world would be a lot better if people could shop whenever they wanted and get what they want at the right price versus having to shop on the terms of the retailer, which is, if you want this item, 8 o'clock, Saturday morning, you know, give up all your family, come get it, else I'm not going to give you that a good price. You know, I think that's really fundamentally wrong. And so I just am sad that the integrity didn't come through. But I do think we helped the store environment. Yeah. Thank you. So we have mics we're going to be passing. It looks like we have some questions up here. If you're loving this episode, please leave a review and comments down below.
Please state your name and your affiliation to the GSB and stand up, please. Okay. Hey, I'm Henry. I'm an MBA student. Uh, thanks for stopping by. Um, so most MBA graduates don't reach the heights that you have. I'm wondering what makes you different and perhaps what you think held back some of your MBA peers who didn't reach uh, as high as you did. Well, I don't, I don't know if heights the right. I never think. It's funny. You, I don't know. I never feel like I achieved a height. I just feel like I got to do a lot of jobs that had increasing response. But I don't think of it in that way. So I think the, the difference is I never tried to be successful. I just tried to do my best. And I think like even in throughout my career, when we're promoting people, the people you want to promote are the people that really do great work. And they do it because they love the work and they're doing it for the customer. And you'll see so many people, it's obvious, they're doing it to try to advance their own interests. I think that's what trips people up. Because once you try to advance your own interests, you generally are not being a genuine, you're not being authentic. And it shows up in a lot of interesting ways. And so I think the reason I was able to succeed is because I just focused not on getting promoted, on doing the level best I could. And it turns out I was in an industry I cared about, and for whatever reasons got promoted. Um, but I think the big reason is because I didn't try to. And it just sort of happened. Looks like we have time for one more. Okay, so another Twitter question from uh, Sam Duboff. This is a, a good one. Um, he said, how did you approach the decision to stand by Ellen as a brand ambassador? Was it, was it really a business decision or an ethics decision? Uh, is everyone familiar with this? So uh, we uh, selected Ellen to be our spokesperson at JCPenney. And it turns out there were a lot of people in the country, or there appeared to be a pretty big movement that wasn't happy with a company like uh, JCPenney, you know, picking a lesbian to be their spokesperson. And so there was a pretty big firestorm after it was announced. But it was a totally easy thing because Ellen represents in everything she does the values of America, the values of JCPenney. And so standing behind her wasn't a business decision. It was a human decision. And that's how all decisions ought to be. Um, so it was very easy to make that. It really wasn't a decision. It was obvious we would support Ellen, and that's what we did. And, and it turned out that that probably wasn't super popular with a lot of the Penny's customers. You know, not a lot, but 10 to 20%. A lot of small town, older, people might not have been comfortable with that. Um, but I think it was the right thing to do, and I'd do it again if given the chance. Well, I think we should give another warm round of applause for Ron Johnson. Thank you so much. Thank you very, very much. Really appreciate it. That was so much fun. And this is for you, a little token of our appreciation. But thanks again.